HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. I'm Southern Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Howdy, guys. Back to the virtual studio again. You know, yeah. we've talked about it a little bit. Uh, I wonder, what, what's, what, are, what are we all clearly thinking? Are we ever going to go back to in-studio? I hope at some point we can make it more of a regular thing, but I think this is still great. You know, I mean, it, it sucks not being there in person with you. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that our our bar in in uh, the heritage studio is not looking so hot right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hope it's not. I hope it's being filtered same. and taken advantage of. You know, it's a. I, I always say it's an amusement park, not a museum. Let's let's ride these yeah, rides. Exactly. I'm just hoping it's not like some sort of like ancient you know tomb where people like crack into it. Like, oh my god, look at the look at the spoils that are in here. That might actually be kind of cool. And kind of yeah, remember that. Smirnoff Ice. You know, <laughs> 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 what is this uh, ancient today. treasure? Yeah, today we're going to remember it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because last got, time. <laughs> yeah, last time. Uh, I got something pretty cool delivered to me. Uh, I'm just going to segue hard. No no, no rhyme or reason. <clears throat> I got a nutcracker. <laughs> I got this nutcracker. It's like this little figure of Abe Overholt. He is holding a bottle of Overholt in one hand. He is sort of, sort of standing next to a barrel of old Overholt. Uh, and it's from this German company. I suppose they're the... They're, they're the premier nutcracker maker in the world. It's gorgeous. Uh, and it stands uh, guard at the bar now. Uh, and uh, one of my guys, Lucky Prexto, um, the guy's name's Lucky, uh, he kind of has a similar hairstyle. And literally every time he works now, someone <laughs> throughout the evening says, hey, is that you? <laughs> Sounds kind uh, of unlucky to me. Well, he's lucky in love. How about that? Uh <laughs> But, you know, I'm a huge fan of Overholt and to know that I got, apparently, and that could have been lied to because it turns out that uh, now I've, I've discovered there's a couple more that already, but I heard that only four of them made it to New York. Only 125 were to- were made in total. So it's a, it's a pretty cool ass piece, especially for someone who has been a devotee of that particular brand. Kind of, so it's like the, all the my, new all for my drinking coin. life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to <laughs> lug this little doll around. It's like, uh, 
know, 18, 18 inches tall, maybe. It's like it's like a little Chucky doll. So you got to carry it around and then like slam it down on the bar, and then like if someone doesn't has their have, have theirs in their pocket, then they have to buy the shot. Is that how it works? Yeah, rules? yeah, exactly. Just just like a Fernet coin. <clears throat> yeah, everybody, yeah. yours is probably in the mail. Yours, right. yours will be over there pretty pretty quickly. I didn't right. realize I wasn't picturing this thing being quite this tall. So it's a foot and a half tall and it has a receding hairline. How confident are you that this thing isn't haunted by the ghost of Abe Overhold? I mean, <laughs> uh, my confidence level is high that it probably is or will be. Excellent. You know, it, it definitely has a excuse me. Definitely has sort of an evil look to it. <laughs> the teeth are particularly frightening. You know, the part where you where you crack where you crack the walnuts or what have you. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm really charmed by it, and I'm super happy that it's uh, now standing guard on the bar and overseeing all the overholt that we pour. So, very exciting. Uh, and speaking of old overholt, uh, you know, one of our guests today uh, wrote an extensive piece about that uh, distillery uh, for his job. Uh, Dave Wondrich is in the studio with us, along with Noah Rothbaum from the Daily Beast's uh, uh, Life Behind Bars podcast. We're happy to have you guys with us again. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Welcome back. My uh, last time, Thank last you. time you guys were in the studio, you iced us. First thing, we uh, weren't going to bring that up. I, I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, we, we. I don't know what you're talking about. We, we. What as now? I recall, you also, yeah, yeah. I, as I recall, you also offered to. Uh, um, I can't remember exactly what, what the offer was, but you were going to, you were going to take someone up in a helicopter. Uh, I should go back and listen <laughs> to the episode. Well, and and it, it wasn't it wasn't so much iced from what I remember because they were room temperature smearing off ice, so. Apologies for that as well. They were um, not at their ideal temperature for serving. Uh, is is there one ideal temperature? Yeah, yes. I was wondering that. <laughs> I, I think it only gets better if it's if the hotter it is. So I, I, I think maybe like you that. know boiling with uh, uh, with 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 like a little bit of lemon peel on top. Oh, I think they did that at the Aviary. It's one of their like. Yeah, you know, I, think, I think it was gaseous yeah. cocktails. Yeah, yeah. Secret menu. Yeah, they they recondensed yeah. it. <laughs> um so i want to get right into the sort of big meat of the matter here uh you guys have put out the uh oxford companion to spirits and cocktails which is this massive tome um and i, I asked off air but you wouldn't tell me i'm sure that one or both of you at least knows the answer to this what does this thing weigh it's humongous uh, i think about 62 pounds i was gonna say <laughs> i was gonna say 30 but i think dave is right it was uh, a piece. In, in my I'll say in my brain it weighs sixty-two pounds, but uh, it's like it's something like four and a half pounds. It's uh, it's enough. Yeah. I mean, almost nine hundred pages. You know, eleven hundred yeah. plus entries from some of the best spears and cocktail minds around the world, including yourself, Souther. Thank yeah. you for your entries. Appreciate that. Uh, glad to be a part of it, uh, uh, and that's amazing. Yeah, this thing's the size of like a a cake, uh, yeah. and it's got some heft to it. It could do some damage. Um, and you wrote it with contributions from bartenders all over, as you just said, but it took what, three, four weeks to get it out. How long did it take to write this? Thing? Yeah, about, about two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Give or take. yeah. I mean, that's a lot of work. It was a good solid two weeks, but, yeah, uh, but, we needed but, the but weekend seriously, off. <laughs> I, I signed the contract for it in, uh, 2012. So that was a long time ago. Wow. In 2012. <laughs> oh yeah, God. exactly. Wow. I, I mean, it wasn't that. working on it full time because, uh, you know, nobody's going to pay me my annual salary for that many years to uh, to work on something like that. But uh, it was a lot of work and it took a long time to conceptualize it, to organize it, to 
beg people to write for us, uh, to uh, keep begging them to get in their entries, to edit the <laughs> whole thing, to harmonize it all so that we don't have people saying 18 different things about each topic. Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a lot. <laughs> I mean, 2012, I had no idea. Um, I, I knew it took a while. I didn't realize the ball got in motion that long ago. How do you, how did the, how did the pandemic impact the getting it done? Do you think that well, helped or was it? Uh, the pandemic is why we have a book in front of us, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. basically, <laughs> because uh, before that, you know, I, I work for a living and uh, my work involves a lot of travel. Noah works for a living. His work involves a lot of travel. So we were traveling and and doing a million other things. And, uh, you know, we definitely, this was top priority, but there were other yeah. priorities. And the pandemic uh, kind of wiped out uh, most of what I did. So, uh, And I think it was, it was a good project to, like, we needed a project to focus on, you know, especially that first year to lose yourself in, in something like this was a real luxury to have you know to to kind of focus on this and block out what was happening in the world and around us at, at least for a couple of hours you know a day or, or you know a week it was just it was good to think about tunnel vision and, and, and think about the oxford companion you know kind of ironically the uh i think just about the time i got my second uh dose of the vaccine is when the uh when the manuscript went in yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> I can imagine again, you know, having such a piece of work in front of you and then being told like, you can't fly anywhere. You can't do anything. Like uh, it sort of would, would steamroll it ahead a little bit. Um, yeah, it did. But it was also, it's also a hard time to be doing anything. Frankly, yeah. it was a hard time to find, to, to, to gear the brain down, but it, but you know, we managed, it was not, it was not an easy project. Uh, that much it, it was helpful. I'll have to say with our, some of our contributors to say, we know that you're at home and you're not traveling <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? and you have a lot of free time on your hands. Like, could you possibly finish that injury? Yeah. Like, While well, we've we, got you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We'd love for you to finish that. So uh, we arranged this pandemic. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's some, some serious uh, shuffling of the schedule. Um, yeah. So with, with a normal book, you'd, you'd maybe trot around and do a bit of a, um, you know, a, a book tour. Are you doing anything like that with this one? Or is it just, uh, do you have to do anything? It's like you wrote it. Well, we would <laughs> like to, but book tours aren't really, uh, uh, much of a factor right now. Uh, especially, yeah. you know, also this is Oxford university press, a university press. They're not used to doing, uh, like a lot of that kind of author stuff. I mean, uh, they are, they were amazingly supportive and amazingly organized and, uh, really, you know, carried this thing over the finish line, but they're not, uh, it, it, it's not like Simon and Schuster or something, you know, where they're, uh, they're going to, uh, have a whole, uh, framework for, for, for authors on the road, et cetera. So, uh, they were, they were very pleased that we were able to, to arrange some events. Uh, but, uh, we're, we're, this is the kind of book that you kind of keep promoting as long as you can, because, uh, it takes a while to persuade people that they need it. And once, and it helps to go and show them that this is actually a useful book. So, uh, we will be out and about, uh, uh, promoting it whenever we can. Well, let me, let me ask you this. How did you wind up doing a deal with Oxford university press in the first place? Because this thing, it, it reminds me, it has a very 
classical look, which I appreciate. It really kind of reminds me of like the massive phone book sized like Stan Jones book from the 1970s. That's just, you know, you could, I mean, I've, I have used that thing both for information and to flatten out rolled up posters after. Yeah, exactly. It's a a multi-use item in my home. So how did you even begin to say like, yes, I, I want to do this with the oldest university in the Western world and, and like actually put those wheels in motion. Frankly, they came to me. So <laughs> we blame Garrett Oliver. <laughs> yeah. We blame Garrett Oliver who had done the Oxford companion to beer and they liked what they saw. And they said, Garrett, uh, can you think of any other people who might come up with a good companion or uh, any other companions that need to be written? And uh, he said, well, there needs to be one on spirits. There needs to be a cocktail one. And they said, oh, that's a good idea. Uh, who do you know? And, you know, Garrett's an old friend of mine and a near neighbor. He lives two blocks from my house. And uh, we see each other pretty often uh, just to uh, have a have a friendly neighborly drink. And uh, so uh, he suggested me and they had a meeting with me and I basically said no. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, because uh, who the hell uh, would take on something like this? But uh, then I thought about it some more, and I finally said yes. Then I started working on it, and then I said help, and that's when we got Noah. Uh, I really needed somebody who uh, could uh, help me build this, the framework of this thing and, uh, and who understood how to put a book together and so on and so forth. I, I picture already that you, you just convinced Noah that, painting the fence was fun. Well, it, it was literally Dave called and he was like, yeah, uh, I have a project and I would love for you to be part of it. And I was like, okay, what is it? And I was like, uh, okay, I'm in. Like, it didn't take much. I was like, okay, Dave is like, this is Dave's project and we're going to be doing the Oxford <laughs> Companion at the cocktail. Like, yeah, like, uh, okay, like, sure. Like, sign me up. Like, and was, I, mean, I think Dave was surprised that it was that easy. Uh, I, I guess I should have held out for, uh, I don't know what, but like, Angle bowls of punch, or uh, you know, uh, <laughs> well, something, you get those but... anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. I, you called but, and you were like, What do you think? I was like, Yep, yeah, I'm in. Like, let's do this. So, thank God for that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, it, at the time, of course, we thought it would it would take about three years, so uh, yeah. we didn't really realize <laughs> the issues involved, and, and the issues involved were very complicated. There was a lot that needed doing. I mean, right. The time is stunning to even think about. And as I sit here and recall writing the pieces that I wrote, I was sitting in my apartment in the Lower East Side. I've moved twice since then. (laughs) Yeah, that's a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah, it was a long time ago. There was a well, there there was a lot uh, of stuff that we didn't appreciate uh, how big the holes were, you know, Uh, when you're dealing with a history of spirits and cocktails. There's no book that gives you biographies of famous bartenders, for instance. So if you want to write like Harry Craddock, when was he born? When did he die? Him you might be able to find. But uh, finding the, the even the year that like uh, Constante Ribalagua was born and died took a while. There's a lot of stuff like that. A lot of famous bartenders never really had biographical attention paid to them. A lot of famous bars, when did they open? Who opened them? You know, all kinds of questions like that. Uh, spirits, brand stories are 
what they could remember when they asked around at the factory the day they got their trademark. You know, right. it's like, when were we founded? Uh, well, ask, ask old Jim over there. And old Jim goes, well, this is my grandpappy's time. It must have been 1793. But don't quote me on that. And of course, they put 1793 on the label. Uh, because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Don't quote me millions of times on that. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I mean, that, that's really how it happened. There weren't trademarks until the uh, 1870s, 1880s. And and the, some of these old manufacturers, when they trademarked their shit, they, uh, you know, they had to figure out a history and they didn't really know. Uh, right, so, they were just yeah. doing their thing and making their product yeah, and getting it out exactly. into the hands of people. Exactly. Uh, there's no no time to be a historian about all this. It's it's business. Yeah, and I they think moved. Sometimes. They moved. Uh, they did all kind. You know, all kinds of stuff happened. Uh, and I think sometimes you know we you know an entry would come in or somebody would ask for something or we'd have an idea about it and we'd go back and you know like oh yeah like that brand you know they got the first license in 1824 and then you read something else about somebody else. It's like, well, they have the first license and it's from 1777. Like how was this spot? You know, and I, that was one of the most frustrating and, and rewarding parts of this whole project was that so much of what we had held as fact and truth, you know, turned out not to be accurate and that it sometimes took a lot of digging to like pull these little strings to find the stories and you'd come across stuff you know, sometimes looking for one thing and the way that, I mean, in the last 10 years, there's been so much more digitization of, and archives have opened up and libraries, which was also a direct effect of the pandemic where, where you know, libraries like, you can't come here, we'll put it all online, which is very fortunate, but it also meant that there was suddenly all this more information and a lot of it, you know, these rabbit holes were very deep and you'd go down it and, you know, sometimes this was for like a 300 word entry, but it would take, you know, three days of work to like yeah. answer some basic questions. So, well, um, you, you know, you know even early, early on, we kind of came to the realization that there's no such thing as a minor entry, you know, even if it's short, it has to be right. Yeah. And it, right. And it has to be like, however much time it takes to figure it out is what it takes. You can't just say, well, it's a short entry. I could put a, I could shovel some bullshit in there and then, save my effort for the long <laughs> entries, you know? Well, right. That just uh, undermines the whole structure of the thing, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, if, if, it, ha- if, it has to be solid. You know, this, it's is like a, a, this is an AP like Euro history. Like this yeah. is like the real deal. Everything yeah. counts. So. Yeah, right. I, I, I look at it like a stone wall, you know, where you, they're the, if you pull out one of the little tiny stones, the big stones start to shift and then uh, the whole thing falls down. So, yeah, exactly. And also we had gotten ourselves in a little bit of trouble because like, you know, Dave's idea was like scenic byways, not just the highways. Like we wanted to include all of the Rick stories, which made it a much more, much better read and a much more, you know, just a more wonderful book in general, but it also required a lot more work because yeah, yeah. some of those things, um, you know, either had never been written about or, you know, had sort of, uh, you know, the way that they had been written about were very casual. So like finding, you know, real definitions for these things or histories proved sometimes to be much bigger undertakings than, than at first they seemed. Yeah. Do you have, well, uh, do either one of you have maybe an example of something that was, I don't know, 
truly surprising to, to either of you that, that, that was discovered either by you or by one of the contributing authors? Well, Ooh, for, so for many. me, yeah, uh, w- one of the ones was, was uh, l- let me just preface this by saying, you know, a lot of the uh, articles uh, in this thing were basically third rails for drink writers. It's like, don't touch that. That's way too big a story. Nobody knows anything. We're not going to get anything good out of that. But you can't ignore them uh, for this. So we had things like the history of the spirits trade that had to be addressed. Who's ever written that? You know, it's it's like global and it's not just Europe and it's not just a bunch of Dutch people bringing cognac from one place to another and things like that. So it, 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 it's there were a lot of complicated things like that. But one of them turns out to be the history of rye whiskey, which uh, American whiskey, the history has been. Uh, basically told from the Kentucky point of view, because after uh, Prohibition, Kentucky was the state that had the strongest distilling industry and came back the most. Uh, But if you, so it's been kind of bourbon centric, but if you go back and look at like rye from the beginning, you see that it has a whole different history from what we've been told. It wasn't the same people. Uh, Rye wasn't the Scotch Irish coming, uh, with their little pot stills and uh, and uh, making you know corn whiskey flavored with rye, just a little bit more rye. Uh, it turns out it was all uh, the origins of rye are mostly German in America, and there were a lot of German Americans in Pennsylvania, and uh, they did things in a very German way. Uh, the whole thing that uh, in America we cook our whiskey on the grain. You know, we we put the grain, the, the particles of grain in the still. We don't strain it out. And the uh, in Scotland and Ireland, they strain it out and think you got to be out of your mind for cooking it with the grain in there. But in America, we always did that, did it that way because that's how they did it in Germany. Uh, and they did it in Germany that way because they always wanted to uh, feed animals with the with the leftovers, and uh, it made a better animal feed if you boiled the grain. Uh, and you look at American distilleries in the 19th century when the industry really came together and you look at maps of them and you see that they all had pens for pigs and cows. Even Overholt had a huge pen for pigs and cows. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff like that, that uh, the story has been kind of lost and, uh, and, uh, and it ends up being very surprising. A lot of the reasons for things are surprising. And I think it's, it's a lot, a lot of the things were way more global Right. They, they all seem to be happening in isolation. Right. That, you know, that the rye is made this way, but we don't understand why. But like, in fact, it's because of what they were doing in Germany to make corn, which, you know, I mean, like they, it, it, none of these things generally are connected. But like when you're putting together this kind of book, you suddenly start to see through lines, you know, connecting a lot of the different entries you know, which we never would have thought of before because, you know, usually you're not thinking about all these disparate like spirits or cocktails or bartenders. And suddenly you see all of these, a much broader understanding and and not to sound like Carrie and Homeland, but, you know, suddenly, you know, the red strings are pulling all of these characters (laughs) into one kind of, you know, now in retrospect story arc, you know, of, 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 spirits and cocktails and, and how they developed. I mean, I, I could give another 
great example, if you if you want, is uh, yeah, of course, with uh, Harry's New York Bar, right in Paris. There's nothing more iconic, uh, and nothing more 20th century kind of. You know, it's the 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 maybe not where the sidecar was invented, but it's its spiritual home, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out there's a direct line between that bar and Jerry Thomas, which uh, was not known because. Uh, at the end of Jerry Thomas's career, uh, an Italian, a young Italian bartender by the name of Ciro Capozzi from outside of uh, Napoli comes to New York uh, for, for a few months and works alongside Jerry Thomas. He goes back to uh, Italy and then moves along the Riviera and becomes the uh, most popular bartender in Monte Carlo, a new resort for the richest of the rich in Europe. And uh, he opens Chiro's Bar and Grill there. And uh, there he uh, basically uh, turns it into a little empire that has branches in Paris and London. Uh, and one of his, uh, the opening l- bartender at the London branch is Harry McAlone, who went on to uh, take over Harry's New York Bar and be the Harry and Harry's New York Bar. So there's this like, real exact like through line. Uh, and th- there's a lot of stuff like that, that just uh, piecing together different, uh, different realities. And, and, and like Noah said, is, is trying to find uh, the connections and things. And that, that's what the book is, I think most useful for. And that was the hardest part of doing it. Right. Well, the most difficult part is always the most rewarding part, right? No, nothing nothing cool is easy, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> right? If surfing was easy, then every kook on the planet would surf, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy, right? So it's cool. Uh, well, that's really fascinating. And I'm really enjoying the book. The book and being a part of it is, is, a, is a great uh, joy for me as well. Um, but let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors and we'll come back. I want to talk to you a little bit about... Uh, we were talking about Rye and its history. I want to talk about Stills uh, and their history. So oh, we'll cool. be right back with the with yeah, more yeah. from yeah with more from Dave and Noah. This episode is brought to you by Route Eleven Potato Chips. From the moment Route Eleven dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. And we are back. You're listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. In the studio today, we have our buddies, Dave Wondrich and Noah Rothbaum. Southern, you had mentioned that you want to talk about stills. I certainly want to as well, because actually, I, we, uh, Dave and I worked on a project together, kind of, uh, with the California Brandy House in Napa. So yeah. I, I don't know if you knew this, Dave, but I'm running that spot out here while, while I'm in California. And uh, oh, that's I get phenomenal. to talk. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a fun place, and you know we talk. Obviously, it's all about distillation and aging, and more importantly, with brandy, it's about blending. But that's a whole other show that we could get into. But um, it's so much that's fun for me to talk topic. about stills. Yeah, exactly. So much fun for me to for me to like. We have a couple of stills, actually, quite a few stills in that room that we get to talk about and showcase. And 
I know mm. Souther, you and I have been to a bunch of distilleries together. We've all been to a bunch of distilleries, but I want, let's talk about the actual functionality and the different styles of stills for those who don't know. Well, it's a, I mean, I think it's, I, I mean, it's to, to, to kind of intro it. I think that our, our view of stills has been very streamlined mm-hmm. over, over history where we see it as like the traditional pot still, right. The, you know, the, the one, you know, Dave Pickerel even had a tattoo of it on his forearm, you know, right. the, the old school one that you could find at Mount Vernon. Right. And then, you know, obviously Aeneas coffee introduces his continuous still in, in the 1830s. Um, and then that's it. Like that's, that's usually yeah. our understanding, like it pot still the column still, and that is, that's it. There's no more history, simple entry. That's, that's done. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, that's yeah, so, like, so you fact, thought, right? <laughs> yeah. So we, well, not so much, not so I, much. You know, when, when, when I started on this thing, I'd been to a bunch of distilleries and I'd been to column distilleries and I'd been to uh, pot dills, pot still distilleries in uh, Cognac and in Scotland. Uh, but I'd also been to uh, distilleries in Chile where they didn't use something that was exactly like either one of those. And that kind of got me thinking. And I'd been to Oaxaca where the pot still didn't look anything like our idea of a pot still. And, right. you know, that, that, that got me thinking and that led down to a, to a certain rabbit hole. Uh, but compounding that was the first thing I did when I signed the contract with, with Oxford was I booked a trip to London and went to the British library with a list of things I wanted to research. And, uh, while doing that, I came across a book that wasn't on my list. It was this little slim handbook, uh, written by uh, a distiller in San Francisco in the 1850s, this guy, guy Jay McCullough. And uh, in it, he starts talking about the standard American whiskey still. And I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. He starts describing this thing. He says it's a tall wooden cylinder with uh, two copper dividers inside and a pipe that goes up from the bottom compartment into the middle one. And then a pipe that goes through the top compartment out to the condenser and uh, without like, and the pipe from the bottom into the middle uh, bends down and into the liquid in the middle compartment. It, it just, it goes on. It's all very complicated to explain in words, but, but, I, but, I was, but let's go back to the very beginning of it. You said wooden, this thing was wooden. This thing was yeah. wooden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The logs. Wooden. <laughs> yeah. And which is so you do a bunch of research and, and uh, it turns out uh, it's nuts. But as early as the 1640s, there was a, a, a German guy, the Germans keep coming up in this story, uh, who said, well, if you don't you know, make a, want to make a full-size still out of copper, what you can do is uh, in a furnace, you heat a uh, small copper container full of water and you run the steam into a wooden barrel in the bottom and then you collect uh, what rises up and run it through a condenser. And this was a very small scale thing. It turns out uh, the Germans kind of took this and ran with it. The Americans took this and ran with it and uh, came up with this thing where you you can make the thing out of wood because you're feeding steam in. 
to do the actual distilling. And the steam is stripping off the alcohol and going through these various chambers, uh, stripping off more and more of the alcohol uh, that's in your wash. And that means you can do a wash for distilling with all the thick grain in it. Uh, and it won't burn down at the bottom, which was always the problem they had in Scotland and Ireland. They say, why are you doing this? You, you know, it'll burn. So, uh, and, and at the same time, it's not what, it's not a column still because all it is is really a series of link linked pot stills like stacked on top of each other, one feeding into the next one uh, that you're feeding steam into at the bottom. And, and there are a million different ways of doing this. They had, log stills where you just carve it out of wood. They had coopered ones because every distillery had a cooperage. So you had somebody on staff who could fix it when, when the staves broke, you had ones made out of copper entirely uh, on and on. People kept tinkering with it and doing this and that, but it was a major type of still used in America up until world war two. I mean, what's the, well, other than maybe not burning, because you're only achieving steam temperatures, yeah. so you really can't burn. The I guess the advantage here was eco- economics, right? Wood is cheaper than yeah. copper by far. Exactly. Wood is cheaper than copper by far. And also, uh, it made a very nice spirit because the uh, as the steam bubbles through this thing, it takes a long time. This is what we learned from Todd Leopold, who has a three-chamber still, as these are called, and had one made according to old plans and has released an absolutely fantastic whiskey made with it uh, just mm-hmm. just uh, last year. Uh, he, he released it. Uh, what happens is it takes a long time to, bo- to steam the alcohol out of your, your wash, and so it spends a long time in each chamber. Uh, there's a middle chamber where most of the alcohol comes out, then the spent wash from that gets dropped down into the bottom chamber to get the remaining bits but at the same time, it's really steaming all kinds of flavor compounds out of the grain and boiling them out like it does in a pot still. But at the same time, it's the, the spirit that comes out is more refined than what you get in a pot still. So you get this spirit that's a little lighter and purer, but has all the flavor compounds of a pot still spirit. And it's, it's really kind of unique and efficient uh, in its weird way. It's not as efficient as a as a modern column still, where the wash comes in and all the alcohol is stripped off in like three minutes. But uh, this one takes more work, but it gives you a much richer spirit than a column still spirit. Sure, I would liken it to maybe like the difference between I don't know grilling a piece of meat and eating it right away, or braising a piece of meat nice and slow. You're going to get you know a lot different flavors coming out over that longer, slower process. Exactly. And, you know, in terms of operation, it's sort of the difference between uh, uh, the pot stills like a muzzle loader where you've got to kind of recharge it every time. And the continuous still is like a belt fed machine gun, where as long as you keep feeding bullets in, they spit out the front. And the other thing is something like, you know, like a bolt action or a lever action rifle where you load some bullets in and you've got to work the thing. Uh, between each shot. Hey Dave, th- this is the speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This isn't the gun show that we're... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, Damon, why did they have the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms? Oh, you sure did. And speaking about explosions, the one downside of the wooden 
three chamber still or the, the log still is that the pressure could build up and they did in fact sometimes explode, which is yeah, definitely an advantage of the, the, the ones made out of metal, like Todd Leopold's three chamber still is, is, is metal, uh, is, uh, copper. So that at least, uh, it's a little bit, uh, it prevents the explosions, which, which, you know, you see, you know, uh, in old newspapers, like little stories about, you know, somebody who's been injured or worse, you know, killed by one of these explosions. So they definitely did happen. So oh, yeah. I was going to ask that there, you think those, I mean, you just said you, you're citing some articles that you read. I would think yeah. that a wooden still would, would certainly buckle under the pressure, but explode seems like a, a strong word. It seemed like a, the wood would crack at some point and pressure would be let off, but you, they popped hard enough to injure and kill. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you've got big, big, uh, you know, steel bands around them too, that might, uh, snap and go flying, and then the staves go all over the place. And also, like incredibly right. hot spirit and steam is. Right. I yeah. mean, it's all. I mean, it's it's dangerous work. I mean, even. I mean, obviously, you know, there could be horrible things that can happen with a uh, three chamber still or a pot still or a continuous still. I, I mean, mean, to be fair, they rare, had thankfully they but, had safety valves back then. But you know, I remember right. the distillery I went into went to uh, to visit in Martinique that had safety valves and hanging from each one was a disused piece of iron to keep it from uh, popping open. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like when I, my grandmother's house, when I was a kid, she had pennies crammed into the the breakers. So the lights would never never go off. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's not really why this is here, you know? (laughs) Well, we, 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 we've asked Todd several times if he could also build a wooden version of his still. Yeah. And so far he has, Politely or, or not even politely declined our um, pleading um, to do that. So, uh, well, you somebody, know, we'll somebody from uh, upstate New York sent me a picture of one in process. Uh, oh, being really? Built. Yeah, a small one. I think it's a test, yeah. a test still, but uh, hmm. we'll see what happens. It was interesting. But that was you know, they wiped the metadata from that picture before they sent it to you, just so it's like completely <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that Dave and I don't show up at their house. We're like, hi, yeah, yeah. we're here. We're here to try your spirit. Still. <laughs> I brought you a Smirnoff ice. Enjoy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you enjoy that. We're going to check yeah. out the still. Um, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> so there's the three chamber still, but there's all kinds of like pot stills turn out to be like incredibly yeah. uh, diverse. In, in ways that we didn't really, that I didn't really understand. Uh, and, you know, it comes down to the basic problem that uh, people tell you, especially people in the industry, that distillation is really hard and uh, that it was this secret knowledge. You could teach anybody intelligent how to distill by telling them, boil wine and find a way to collect the first part of the steam. One of the right? first parties I ever went to in college was a shine and cheese party. It's, yeah. You know, there you if, go. <laughs> if drunk 19 year olds yeah. can figure it out. It can't yeah. really be that exactly. complicated. It can't be. It's not that complicated. And there are many ways of collecting that steam. You could do it but, inside but, the and, still. And, you and, can do it outside the still. You and know? just for the record, Dave and I are not encouraging anybody to break the law <laughs> to make the still spirits at their house. That is still no, illegal no, no. in America. Yes, yeah. nor, nor was, am I. It all sucked. And the cheese, this, by the way, was craft singles. This so. is all <laughs> just theoretical. This yeah. is theoretical, theoretical discussion. Uh, but it is very the hands easy. Of the professionals, and yes. And there are very for many professionals. Ways of doing yes. it. Yeah, for professionals. I have a question about the uh, the the wooden still too. So, is it 
I mean, obviously after a certain amount of runs, it's not really going to important flavor, but I was wondering if any of like the, the oak or the wood that you're using is coming out in the actual end product. I don't think much. They used uh, right. poplar and uh, poplar is a very neutral wood. If gotcha. you've ever like, you know, broken off a poplar branch, there's not a lot going on there. It's, it's uh, that was, that was the most popular wood for this. Uh, it, it may have come through. I know pre-prohibition rise tend to be very piney. Uh, yeah. And I know uh, Sother, you and I have tasted them side by side. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a, there's a weird woodiness, but uh, Todd Leopold got that in his too, without using a wooden still. So mm. it, it might be just a factor of boiling the rye for so long. Right. Mm. I mean, I, I guess the, sort of undertone here is yeah it's a pretty easy process as humans we've been doing it for quite a long time and yeah. of course we were doing it you know collectively sub collective subconscious happening kind of at the same time all over the world so of course exactly. there are different of course there are different methods right yeah and like, i mean all- the Chi- the chinese had wooden pot stills which is even crazier because they didn't put steam in it they just had a, a metal bowl at the bottom that right. they uh, made sure to keep the fire off of and then uh, the sides of the still were wood and then there was another metal bowl at the top that they filled with cold water. Then you just put a pipe in the side and, and collect whatever condenses along the bottom of the bowl. They, they use that kind of still in Oaxaca too. Yeah. yeah. What about the, uh, there's some, uh, I know that uh, Dave Pickerel was telling me once about some stills projects. He was like consulting on somewhere in South America or Central America. And it was like the stills were made from gourds. Yeah. yeah. That's, you could do that. Yeah. You could do that uh, if you, you know, you have you need some bo- you need some some wood somewhere, some uh, metal somewhere. Right. If you're doing it over direct heat, but but uh, the gourd is like the perfect shape. If right. you had a giant yeah. gourd, I mean, it even has a built-in neck. You yeah, know, exactly. For, you know, for reflux, it's it's kind of the perfect uh, the perfect thing. Yeah, but, I've, I've I mean, seen them used as still heads, and you could you could use it as a body too, as long as you put a metal disc in the bottom and, and put, you know, brick around it so that the uh, flames don't get to the gourd part. But right. I mean, there's in so theory. many in theory, yeah, there's, yeah, in no, theory, it's exactly. All theoretical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In theory, this whole show is theoretical. But uh-huh. there, there are just so many different ways of doing this. It's kind of crazy. Uh, I had uh, Alexander and Gabriel and I like we had a long conversation about this a few years ago and he went and made a couple of these weird styles of still uh, very small ones, and we uh, and and had some uh, uh, made rum in them, just as a you know used some some uh, some uh, molasses fermentate, and uh, we did this for tails, and then we tasted these things side by side, uh, the regular pot still, the Chinese style still, with uh, wooden sides and uh, and the and the the bowls at the top and bottom. And there was another one that was a European one with a huge, with no condenser at all, no water at all, just a, a huge copper head on the top uh, where it would finally rise so high that the uh, the copper would get cool and it would condense at the top and run down the sides oh, cool. uh, and get drained off. And we tried the uh, the spirit from each of them. It was very interesting. It was it was really uh, uh, it was really educational. So it, it's possible to do this. It, it it kind of reminds me of like the cocktail shaker, right? I mean, now there's like basically two styles, right? Or 
you know, like, you know, that most people use, right? The, you know, tin on tin or glass and, and a metal cup or the one with the built-in strainer, right? And that's essentially it. But if you look back at like the patent office, you'll find hundreds of, you know, exactly. patents for all types of still, like of shakers. And it's the same thing with stills where mm-hmm. you start looking back and, and even in, even in London, like in the 1800s, there are people making all types of amazing, you know, versions of, of, of column stills, of pot stills, of pot column stills. Like, you know, I have a book where, you know, the pages pull out to show some of these illustrations. And it's just kind of amazing that that's, no pun intended, condensed down now into our understanding <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of pot still really, and then like a column still that you'd yeah. see at like Jim Beam or something or, you know, or, I mean, or, you know any American even the even the column still you're absolutely right because even you know we're we're taught that there's basically uh, the the coffee still comes in and all the others disappear what in fact right. some of these stills <laughs> uh were there was the St. Mark still which was used for 50 or 60 years there was a different kind of column still there was the the Stein still which is the craziest still I've ever seen that used horsehair membranes and carburetors like a series of them horizontally. And that was a type of continuous still. And there were a few of those were, were used into like the 1870s from the 1820s. So uh, it, it, it's always a lot more complicated than you think when you get, when you look at the detail of this stuff. And it's also like, you know, when we talk about how different brands have never changed in their history of production, right? And you're like, well, uh, <laughs> I made 300 years ago, you used a completely different, or not even, 100 right. years ago, you used a completely different type of still that created a completely different type of spirit. So, of course, it tastes just like it did right. then, yeah. now. You know, I mean, you, you realize that in some ways we have no idea what some of these things tasted like or some of these brands and that the current version may have, I mean, maybe delicious, but have may be no, any, any kind of, you know, uh, representation right. of what it was good well, sh- or bad. Yeah, sure. I, when Dave and I tasted those uh, overholts from pre-prohibition against, you know, modern day, you know, I described it like going to the store and buying a bag of Oreos and reaching in and pulling one out and it's, dipped in white chocolate and covered in sprinkles and has raspberry center, but the, the label still says Oreos. Lots exactly. of things, lots of <laughs> yeah. things changed over time. They, you know what I mean? They moved from location. So there's a different temperature. The grains are certainly different today than they were back then. The still was different. The proof, the proof was different. Like everything was different. The last time we were on the speakeasy, was there three of you or two of you? I don't even remember. Like, <laughs> yeah. Everything's changing. Yeah, everything's everything changing. changes. But you know, uh, you know what? It, it is kind of funny though, because there's the other side of that is uh, 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 years ago when I, I went down to Cognac to taste also with Alexander Gabriel, uh, a whole range of three-star Cognacs throughout the history of three-star Cognac, which was basically the kind of v, the old VS, VSOP, somewhere in between uh, designation. And uh, this was to come up with one that could, uh, this was the genesis of the, the Ferrand 1840 cognac, which is uh, based on a prephylloxera 1840 cognac, an actual cognac, and uh, tasted side by side. They're not identical, the original 1841 and the Ferrand one, but they're quite close, which is, uh, what you can do with blending these days. And, you know, 
I, I'm not willing to say that, of course, they are always entirely different. Uh, I've tasted, you know, there's some other brands. I've tasted uh, old ones and modern ones, and they're remarkably similar. Uh, Johnny Walker Black is one of them. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's the that's the real artistry and uh, yeah. is is blending, right? Yeah. And it really has to be done through blending. If you're not blending, it's much harder for sure. Uh, you can do it also through aging and things like that. Yeah. But. And blending is probably the most misunderstood part of of spirits making in my opinion. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, people don't get it. It's really complicated. And I think thanks to what we saw with scotch in, in the 80s and 90s where single malt emerges, you know, the the name blending gets denigrated in single malt's ascent, right? They kind of trash scotch blends, you know, to kind of promote single malts. And as a result, you know, blends, you know, I don't think they've ever, especially in America, American blended whiskey is, is not particularly wonderful product and never has been. And, you know, blending kind of has become misunderstood and almost a sort of dirty word, you know, mm-hmm. that people want, you know, straight, they, you know, bourbon, they want single malts, they want, you know, unblended stuff. And it's sort of like, it, it's not that it's either or, but these things existed side by side, like, you know, that blended scotch was a delicious and can be a delicious premium experience. It's just that, you know, obviously there are all types of blends you know, yeah i mean i'd, blends, I'd argue blends. that it's it's harder to make a blend consistently than it is to just bang out a, a you know a, oh yeah a, oh yeah a, a, you know a single selection but any anybody anybody can pick a single barrel i mean right. walk into right i mean but like to i i it, i mean i understand intellectually how even some of these you know even for the straight whiskeys people don't understand that we're you know the big brands are blending literally hundreds of barrels right and that a lot of them you know, year after year for them to taste exactly the same. It's like, it hurts my head to think oh, if you, how if, they do that. Yeah, if same. you go to the, the, the tasting sessions where they decide, uh, I mean, those people are such good tasters. I've done yeah. try. I've, I've sat at the table and, and done triangle tasting with, with them sometimes uh, where, where you've got uh, three samples and two of them are the same and one is different. And sometimes it, for me, it, it, it was, it was very difficult to pick out the different one. And they were like banging through these things at three times my speed. You know, that's just not a problem at all. Nose, 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 no tasting allowed. And they're like, bang, bang, bang. Yep. 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 And they, their accuracy rate was a hundred percent. And it's just, it's very impressive. There are people who really know what they're doing, but uh, I mean, I think it's a skill. It's a real skill. skill. There could be no greater service to American whiskey than to get rid of the requirement that says, uh, or, or to change the law that says blended wi- American blended whiskey can use neutral spirit. If, right. If you got rid right. of that and said it has to be aged spirit, uh, equally aged uh, with with you know with with the flavoring spirit, I think that would really really uh, make uh, American blended whiskey come back in some yeah, way. Yeah, change the game. Yeah, it would T- totally change the game. Wait, you don't like vodka mixed in with your rye? <laughs> How dare you? Uh, oh, uh, no more than 40%. It seems, right, no that yeah, it seems that it's undoing the process. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, well, guys, listen, I, I know that I could uh, prattle on with you forever about uh, all of these topics. It's always fascinating and wonderful to have you on. 
really, really thankful that you guys finally got this book out. It is amazing and impressive, and it should be on the back bar of every uh, notable joint uh, or gin house uh, that, that exists um, because it's a great reference. Uh, and it's just fun. It's fun to, like like you said, go down these rabbit holes and pick up on these things that, that you may have had a, an inkling about, but, but you really get a revelatory uh, story as you read through the book. So really appreciate you being on the show today and, and sharing this stuff with us. Thank you so much. Thank it's been such a us. pleasure. Uh, it's, it's been great just talking with all of you, and uh, I, I can't wait till uh, we're sitting around with with uh, little stemmed glasses in our hands and doing the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bending elbows. So, uh, where can people follow along with your hijinks? Uh, uh, I know, Dave, you're not on Instagram, but you're you're pretty active on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter at David Wanderich. Uh, check in, and uh, that'll let you know where anything else is. Yeah, same same for me at no at N Rothbaum on on Twitter uh, will be uh, probably the best place. But uh, thank you for having us on. Obviously, we look forward to the next time when we could do this in person. Yeah. We'll definitely be bringing the Smirnoff Ice for you guys. Um, yeah. that will break <laughs> three. So. Um, uh, no, I'd be looking over my shoulder forever. By then there will be about six hosts. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bring a case. We'll bring a case. What if we brought it and brought a little tiny still? Yeah, there you go. Listen, uh, I'm, I'm all theory. about in, in theory. theory. Yes, we're going to theoretically theory. do some stilling <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in in the studio. That'd be great. Uh, guys, so much fun to have you on. Damon, you want to take us yeah. out? Yeah, that's it for the speakeasy this week. Check out Heritage Radio Network for many more programs like this one. Click on the beating heart to donate to the station to keep us going. And Dave, Noah, thanks again. It's always a blast having you. And uh, yeah, like like you said, can't wait to uh, be sitting in New York City with you guys or anywhere else that we may end up together and uh, having a drink. Until then, cheers, guys. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>